Dwayne, I'm glad you're going to sit back there. You're going to make me nervous sitting up there, so thank you. Uh, welcome this morning. Uh, thankful and grateful to have everyone uh, with us this morning. If you want to begin opening your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, uh, we're going to be continuing our uh, series in the parables. And our parable this morning begins with a few introductory words. Verse 9 says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. And I thought, I've seen that word contempt before. I think I know what it means, but I'm probably better off looking it up in the dictionary. And so here's what my Greek dictionary defines contempt as. It means to show by one's attitude or manner of treatment that an entity has no merit or worth. And aren't you glad that we never have issues with contempt? Aren't you glad that we don't have a political climate, then where when people disagree with us, we call them losers or people of low IQ or just plain crazy? Aren't you glad that we live in a culture where everyone feels like they are treated with dignity and respect and that nobody is arguing over which lives matter? Aren't you glad we live in a world where we no longer deal with contempt as we look at one another. And if, if there is a little contempt in the world, I'm sure it's them, those idiots out there who continue to show contempt to others. I think our current view of contempt can be well summarized by something I saw yesterday while I was on a walk. Two blocks south of here, there was a car parked that had a bumper sticker, and on the back it said, you're the moron. Maybe, perhaps, we still have an issue with looking at others with contempt. Our parable this morning is about the relationship between righteousness and contempt. And what we're going to learn is that one cannot be righteous in God's eyes while regarding others with contempt. So I think that we're going to be introduced at first to two views of righteousness, and we're going to talk about that first view of righteousness. There was a form of righteousness during Jesus' day, which is a righteousness that was modeled by the religious leaders. And their formula was simply this, that righteousness equals distance from unrighteous thing, things and from unrighteous people. So the safer the distance that you keep, the better off that you are, and thereby the more righteous you are. So the parable begins in this way, in verse 11, that there was a Pharisee standing by himself and was praying thus. Now, depending on your translation, there's two ways that that phrase is said. Some people believe that the text says that the man stood by himself praying, or some other translations will say that the man stood and prayed to himself. And I think it seems pretty clear that there's no righteous Jew at the time who would think, hey, I should just pray to myself. And so I think that the most natural way, of course, to understand this is that he is standing by himself while he prays to God. And one would wonder, why would he stand by himself? He was a member of the Pharisees, which was a separatist party. In fact, the very name Pharisee means those who are separated. See, long before there was COVID-19, long before there was social distancing, the Pharisees had it down to an art. They believed that sin was a contagion, and what they had to do was they had to socially distance themselves from anyone or anything that was unclean or unrighteous in any sort of way. 
there's a document written between when the Old Testament finished and the New Testament was written called the Assumption of Moses, and it says, Do not touch me, lest thou should pollute me in the place where I stand. There's a rabbi who lived about a hundred years before Jesus, his name is Hillel, and he said, Keep not aloof from the congregation, warning some that some people think that righteousness is seen in staying away from or apart from the congregation. See, for this Pharisee, righteousness means distance. Distance either from Gentiles, distance from ritual impurity, or distance from anything that is a moral or not of God's notion. And so when a sinner is identified, your best course of action is to steer clear to ensure that there's at least six, probably more feet of distance between you and the unrighteous, and that will be how you express your righteousness to God. So it's not surprising, is it, that when this man goes up to the temple at the time of prayer, because you can never be so sure what kind of sinners might sneak into the temple, that you're better off standing by yourself, apart from everyone else, as an expression of your righteousness. See, this parable finds itself falling into a line of an already far too long line of people who see righteousness as separating from those who are unclean in their eyes. Even as we look at the parables we've looked at, we talked about Simon who invited Jesus over to eat and a woman came up and she began to, to wash Jesus' feet. And Simon said, if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman this was and what would Jesus do? He would distance himself from her because that's what righteous people do. They ensure there's a distance. We studied about the Good Samaritan and what happened in that parable. A priest and a Levite came by and they saw the man. And what did they do? They passed by on the other side, ensuring that righteousness had a distance between them and this man. A parable that we did not study, but I suspect that you know well, the parable of the prodigal son. What was it that the older brother did when they said, hey, the party's happening, come on in and celebrate this son that was lost, that has now been found. He is angry and he remains outside because he's going to be separate from that which is unclean and that which is unrighteous. See, when you practice this form of righteousness, it is determined by distance, but it's not very long before those inches and feet between people morph into a sense of betterness. And I'm not mispronouncing, and you're not hearing a Canadian accent, I am saying the word betterness, not bitterness. Betterness is the disease where when you get so used to finding and identify everyone else who is wrong and sinful, that not only are you distancing yourself this way, but you begin to distance yourself this way you begin to be infected by betterness, that you are better than those who you see, you are better than those who you are around. And so the Pharisee prays thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I would contend that the introduction of our parable is supposed to help us read this prayer. Remember the introduction, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. See, this Pharisee, his prayer without that context is actually pretty ambiguous. I mean, can we ask ourselves, is it ever appropriate to pray, I am thankful that I am not a thief, or I am thankful that I am not a rogue, or I am thankful that I am not an adulterer, or I'm thankful that I don't have a job that requires me to break ethical standards every time I go to work. I think we can be thankful for those things. 
as long as we recognize the source of our thanksgiving. In fact, Psalm 1-1 says, Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. We should be happy and thankful that we are not dealing with the kinds of things that certain people deal with in their lives. But that way of praying... And that way of interacting with people, it can increase our gratitude for what God has done, and thereby we begin to treat people with more mercy, or it can begin to exalt ourselves, and thereby we begin to treat others with contempt. I was listening to a podcast this week, an interview with a guy named Patrick Lencioni, and I sure hope I can pronounce his name right, because it's one of those hard Italian names. But in the podcast, he was talking about, now, if you don't know who Patrick uh, Leoncioni is, see, there, it's a hard name. Uh, he, he's a business consultant. He's an author, sold over 6 million books. And he was talking about a period about 11 years ago where he found himself in and out of depression. And, and somebody was asking him about what happened during that time of his life in the interview. And he said, I never cheated on my wife, thank God. I never took drugs or started drinking, drinking or gambling, but I have total empathy to those who do all these things when they feel that complete emptiness. I knew, I think God knew I wasn't strong enough to endure all that. See, he is praying really the same prayer that this Pharisee prays. I am thankful that I did not commit adultery. But he says in the process, he thanks God for it, and he is now has more empathy towards those who have and towards those who did because his experience makes him able to understand that situation a little bit better. You see, there is something that our praying about Thanksgiving can do. It can either give the attention to what we have done, and then it affects us with betterness, or we can glorify God for what he has done. And it creates mercy in our regard to others. But the man goes on in his prayer and he says, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. And once again, this prayer is a little ambiguous without this larger context. Some people say, well, clearly you can't give God your resume of good works in prayer. I mean, what if the man stood up and he prayed this prayer? The Pharisee standing by himself was praying, if you try my heart... If you visit me by night, if you test me, you will find no wickedness in my mouth. My mouth does not transgress. As for what others do by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your path. My feet have not slipped. That, of course, is a prayer of David from Psalm 17, verses 3 through 5. In fact, there's a whole genre of psalms that are called psalms of innocence. Psalm 5, 7, 17, 26, where people are getting up and saying, I've done what you asked me to do. I've been faithful. I've been righteous. And we don't look at all of those psalms and say, mm-mm, got to take these out of the Bible. You can't pray those sorts of things. In fact, doesn't Jesus himself pray in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. Isn't Jesus sharing his resume of faithfulness with God? See, the problem of these righteous deeds is that they are supposed to be vehicles to get us to God's intended destination. And if by these righteous deeds, instead of getting us to where God wants us to be, they move us into a place where God doesn't want us to be, that's the problem. 
with these righteous deeds. I'm reminded of an incident that happened in uh, May 27th, uh, 1997, an Air Force captain was uh, piloting an A-10 fighter jet. Uh, it was a training mission, 400 miles an hour over the Arizona desert, and she pulls up, but unfortunately what she did not realize at the time was that her plane was upside down, and by pulling up, she in fact crashed the plane right into the ground. But how often in our acts of righteousness do we say, I'm going to do these acts of righteousness, and they're going to draw me closer to God, but the flesh latches onto it and draws us further away from God. We start to say, look at how much progress I'm making. Look at how great I'm doing. Look at how wonderful I am. See, each of these acts of righteousness that are introduced both in the Old and New Testament are like a jump ball in basketball. And we realize it can get tipped either way. It can be something that God will use for his glory, but can also be something that the devil will latch on to. And it seems clear that in the case of this Pharisee, God has not latched on to it that in fact he uses this to promote his own betterness. I fast twice a week. See, fasting can be an example of a kind of act of righteousness that had a certain intention. If we go to Isaiah chapter 58, verses 3 and following, we find out that fasting is often seen as a tool to teach people to deny themselves so that they would be humble. And so in, in verse 3 it says, Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? And what you find is the second line is a repeat of the first line, just using different words. So fasting is equated with what? Humbling oneself. To fast means to be humble. And yet, look at your servants. Uh, look, your servant, sorry, look, you serve your own interests on your fast day and oppress all your workers. And that's the disconnect, isn't it? This is a day where you are to be humble and yet on that very day of your fasting, you are not regarding others. And that's a problem because the function of fasting is to treat you, to teach you to treat and regard others with more humility, with more kindness and with more tenderness. Isaiah will go on to write in the second part of uh, verse 4, Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? The intention of fasting was to produce righteousness. But it was to produce a very different kind of righteousness than is shown in Isaiah, and then is shown in this Pharisee there. So if fasting is about righteousness, what kind of a righteousness are these deeds supposed to promote? This is where we introduce the second form of righteousness. Whereas for the Pharisees, righteousness means distance. For Jesus, righteousness means drawing near to others. The more righteous one is, they will love the Lord their God with all their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength. And then the more they will do what? The more they will love their neighbor as themselves. That when they see people in desperate situations, they will not distance themselves, that they will not experience betterness, but they will enter humbly into the lives of others. And isn't this the kind of righteousness we've already seen modeled in Luke? When the woman came near, Jesus treated her with mercy and with compassion. And the Good Samaritan, who is it who shows us what love of neighbor looks like? It's the Samaritan who goes near the person. 
the prodigal son, it is the father who is the example of one who will go near others. See, true righteousness draws us near to others in the form of mercy. And that's why we have the introduction to the second character. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. The tax collector was also standing far off. But his standing far off was not because of his betterness. His standing far off was because He viewed others as more worthy than himself. In fact, it seems as though he feels very out of place. And do we realize that there are people who come into our church who feel the exact same way? They have the sense that they belong, but I don't belong. They have the sense that God loves and cares for them, but God doesn't love and care for me. And so what does the righteous person do? Do we say, well, that's right. You shouldn't be here. Think about what you've done. Think about everything you've done. Or does the righteous person say, draw near to God as we draw near to you. So the Pharisee, the tax collector, stands far off. And Jesus says that it was the tax collector who went home justified. Now, as with most parables, there are an awful lot of questions we probably have. Like, how does that happen? What, what, what really happened afterwards? What led up to this? All these things. But I think what Jesus is wanting to do is to stimulate with us the possibility that a tax collector can enter the kingdom of God. And if a tax collector can enter the kingdom of God, then the righteous people will be the kinds of people who draw near to the very people who are looking for and for seeking the kingdom of God. How is it possible that someone like the tax collector could find his way into the kingdom? That's what Jesus' final message is in the latter part of verse 14. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Two verbs used in the passive sense, two verbs used in the active sense. And what we come to find out is I cannot actively exalt myself. I must be passively exalted. And anybody who makes an effort by their own deeds to exalt themselves will find themselves, in fact, humbled. And yet, whoever is humbled, we find, God will then lift them up and God will exalt them. See, the righteous are those who humble themselves, knowing that this will allow them to draw near to others. And in many ways, that's probably a good place to end the sermon. But I'm going to end the sermon with a warning for us. The warning comes out of an experience that a friend had visiting uh, a church where this was the Bible class that Sunday. And the Bible class teacher went through talking about all the ways that this Pharisee was hypocritical. He went through all the ways that this Pharisee was judgmental. He went through all the ways that this Pharisee missed the heart of God. And, and he's kind of on a roll and that bell rings to let him know he's got five minutes. And he wanted to keep All of this stuff going, and yet the bell rings, and so he decided to end the class with a prayer. And the friend says, this is how we ended his class. God, I thank you that we are not like that Pharisee. And you can't do that, can you? Because betterness 
causes us to look at others and say, I'm just so glad that I am better than him. I think a more faithful way of reading this parable is to find ourselves relating to that Pharisee. To find ourselves saying, that could, that may, or that is me. And unless I am attentive to that danger, I will find myself thinking of that man with contempt. He is a hypocrite, he is an idiot, he is a fool, and by me saying that, I realize I am doing the exact same thing. We need to break this betterness that we experience. And we need to humble ourselves. Dallas Willard, who was a teacher of philosophy at the University of Southern California, I've told this story before, but it really resonates with me in this context, where there was a belligerent student in the class who was challenging him and was, um, was saying all sorts of negative things about Dallas Willard in the very field that was his field of specialty. And there was a friend who was there who was there to do an interview with, with uh, Willard in it. And after the kid's kind of completely inappropriate statement, Willard just simply said, I think that's a good place to end the class. And the class ended. And afterwards, the interviewer said, why didn't you tear into that young man? Why didn't you set him straight? He was clearly disrespectful to you. And Willard simply said, I was practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word. Having heard that story, John Ortberg, who uh, Willard was a mentor of his, said once to Dallas, I can't even talk without trying to sound impressive. He, he, he realized that I got the same struggle that this Pharisee has. And Willard's response was, being right is actually a very hard burden to carry gracefully and humbly. That is why nobody likes sitting next to the kid in the class who's right all the time. One of the hardest things in the world is to be right and to not hurt other people with it. And I think that's what Jesus is calling us to be, is to be the kinds of people who don't use our rightness or our righteousness to hurt other people, but we use our rightness and our righteousness to show mercy to others. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And as we go from here, we know that we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.